from PRX. Today on Studio 360, introducing New York icons. Stories about art and entertainment spawned in New York. Like that 1950s summer the young Sylvia Plath spent in the city. Plath found herself suddenly embedded in the fashion and beauty industry, and she's become part of this vast propaganda machine that turns women into objects. The making of the bell jar and the unmaking of its author. Plus, how Reuben Blades and Willie Colon took salsa from the streets of New York to the world. The album became a smash, I mean, a Beatles-sized type of success abroad. The groundbreaking hit album, Siembra. This was like Shakespearean poetry on wax. A New York novel and a New York album, both ahead on Studio 360, right after this. Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. Studio 360's American Icon series has deeply examined dozens of important and influential works of literature, music, film, architecture, design, and all kinds of visual art, such as the Disney theme parks and the autobiography of Malcolm X. These are the works of art and entertainment that have shaped who we are and how we see ourselves as Americans. Now, Studio 360 is turning to our hometown, New York City, for a new batch of icon stories. The stories about works of art that took shape in the city, but that have shaped the minds of people everywhere. Later on in this hour, we'll hear about Siembra, the salsa album that lots of people thought was doomed when it came out, and then went on to become a mega hit. But first, The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath is set mainly in New York City, but it's not always thought of as a New York novel like Catcher in the Rye or The Age of Innocence are. That's probably because what's autobiographical about the novel tends to eclipse other aspect of it. Just a month after The Bell Jar was first published in 1963, Plath killed herself. Since the book is pretty autobiographical and its narrator attempts suicide, it can be hard not to read it as a sort of literary suicide note. But of course, there's a lot more to the novel. It's about a young woman from the Boston suburbs who, like Plath, lands a plum internship guest editing a women's magazine in New York in the summer of 1953. And it does a lot to capture what did and still does go along with trying to make it in New York. All the outsized possibilities and outsized disappointments. On this edition of New York Icons, producer Binish Ahmed has the story of The Bell Jar. I first read The Bell Jar when I was 16 and bored in Ohio, dreaming of being a writer and reporter in New York City, a lot like Sylvia Plath, who won a golden ticket to that dream life, a summer working at a top women's magazine. When Sylvia Plath was at Smith College, she won a guest editorship to Mademoiselle. The magazine brought her and a number of other girls to New York in the summer of 1953. If you know anything about The Bell Jar, it's that it's based on Sylvia Plath's own life, 
When the main character, Esther Greenwood, goes back home after that summer, she, like Plath, attempts suicide, is committed to mental institutions, and is treated with electroshock therapy. But The Bell Jar is not just a story of an unstable teenager. Plath uses her own story to reflect on the culture she lived in. She lays out that mission right there in the first sentence. It was a queer, sultry summer. The summer they electrocuted the Rosenbergs, and I didn't know what I was doing in New York. Julius and Ethel Rosenberg had been convicted of conspiring to sell secrets about the atomic bomb to Soviet spies. That's a powerful metaphor, says novelist Meg Wolitzer. The beginning, the first lines of the bell jar, she talks about the execution of the Rosenbergs. And then later on, the character of Esther Greenwood experiences electroconvulsive therapy. And you make the link as a reader uh, about electricity and the terrible time in America, which I didn't live through, the Rosenbergs. But just the sense of her pain being expressed so beautifully, so clearly. Reading The Bell Jar again, now that I am a writer and reporter in New York, it felt like a completely different book than the one I remembered. One where everything that dazzles about the city also contains some kind of doom. From a fancy dinner of crab salad that poisons to a thrilling date that turns violent. I was supposed to be the envy of thousands of other college girls just like me all over America, who wanted nothing more than to be tripping about in those same size 7 patent leather shoes I'd bought in Bloomingdale. In many ways, the 50s were booming. Fashion magazines capitalized on the end of the austere war and a new prosperity. The ads in those magazines showcase trends like the hourglass silhouette of Christian Dior's new look look, puts on show his summer creations and tailored tweed suits by Coco Chanel. Mademoiselle was one of the biggest magazines in the country at the time. And every year, promising young women won the chance to put together its annual college issue. The novelist Diane Johnson was one of them. She joined Plath as a guest editor at Mademoiselle 66 years ago. So you can imagine that my memories have faded a little. Johnson is 85. She divides her time between Lake Tahoe and Paris. But back then, like Plath, she hadn't spent much time outside of her small town. Plath came from Wellesley, Massachusetts, and Johnson from Moline, Illinois. The whole experience of urban sophistication and the great world of fashion and magazines and so on was extremely shocking and fascinating, I guess, but a little scary. It was also incredibly busy. The magazine had us scheduled from morning till night with with thrilling events. Fashion shows and theater performances Dinners at high-end restaurants and dance parties where Ivy League boys in crisp white blazers were hired to be their dates. Johnson says she and the other young women had been told in advance what to wear. For instance, we had to wear hats, and we could not go without our hats. And we were not to wear white shoes, I remember. And there were other rules like that, that they just didn't want us to look too much like country mice. Plath had a special role that summer. Mademoiselle had named her guest managing editor. You had the idea that it was kind of preordained that she would be 
this personage. And so we all had that impression of Sylvia that she was uh, kind of the big shot. So we were a little in awe of her. Look what can happen in this country, they'd say. A girl lives in some out-of-the-way town for 19 years, so poor she can't afford a magazine. And then she gets a scholarship to college and wins a prize here and a prize there and ends up steering New York like her own private car. Only I wasn't steering anything, not even myself. I just bumped from my hotel to work and to parties, and from parties to my hotel and back to work like a numb trolleybus. Good to meet you. It's good to meet you as well. Heather Clark is the author of a forthcoming 900-page biography of Plath. I meet up with her, and we take a look at the magazine Plath oversaw that summer. You know, what struck me the first time I looked through this was the number of ads. You just can't quite believe how many ads are in this magazine. It's almost page after page. And of course, fashion spreads. It's a fashion magazine, so... In a back room of the New York Public Library, we're flipping through a copy of the magazine. Clark points out one ad in particular. It's for shapewear that's also sportswear. So this Jansen ad, anyone for action, anyone for beautiful form and action? There's a woman with a Barbie physique, wearing a hat and gloves, with a bra and girdle, as she gets ready to serve in a game of tennis. This is, if we do say positively, the most pleasant-to-wear, slimming, trimming, smoothing, soothing figure maker ever devised. Mademoiselle had become interested in her after a story she had submitted a year earlier won its national fiction contest. But Clark says that Platt struggled in her role as managing editor. She had wanted to be fiction editor. At just 19 years old, Plath had already published poems and won awards. Mademoiselle published some of the top writers of its day. Dylan Thomas, Tennessee Williams, Truman Capote. But instead of selecting and editing short stories, Plath wrote fashion blurbs, including one praising the versatility of sweaters. I think Plath found herself suddenly embedded in this in the fashion and beauty industry and she's become part of this vast propaganda machine that turns women into objects bio green they were promoting it for fall bio green with black bio green with white bio green with nile green it's kissing cousin fashion blurbs silver and full of nothing sent up their fishy bubbles in my brain they surfaced with a hollow pop she wanted to be the best writer. She wanted to sew her own clothes. She wanted <laughs> to raise honeybees. She wanted to make her own you know, honey. and She just wanted it all. Can women have it all? It's a question we're still asking. It had just started to come up in the 1950s when women who'd done the whole Rosie the Riveter thing during the war were now expected to be homemakers again even though many had thrived in the workforce and developed real professional aspirations. It was an ongoing discussion within society about whether women could do three things at once. Diane Johnson got married one month after the guest editorship at Mademoiselle. The summer had changed her and given her a greater sense of what her life could be. But then she had four children within the span of six years. So I was home with these little kids, but they had naps. And that's when 
Somebody said, why don't you write a novel about something that you can do during nap time? You know, that's the way things evolve. And I evolved into a novelist because of nap time. Johnson has since written more than a dozen books and been a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. In The Bell Jar, Esther Greenwood reflects on her sort of boyfriend, a medical student at Yale who everyone told her was such a good guy. I also remembered Buddy Willard saying in a sinister, knowing way that after I had children, I would feel differently. I wouldn't want to write poems anymore. So I began to think maybe it was true. That when you were married and had children, it was like being brainwashed. And afterward, you went numb as a slave in some private totalitarian state. A few years later, Plath thought she found a man who would not brainwash her. As a graduate student at Cambridge, she met fellow poet Ted Hughes, who she married in 1956. Both enjoyed growing reputations as writers when they were interviewed by the BBC's Owen Leeming in 1961. You wouldn't like to give the impression, though, that uh, you spend your whole married lives thinking up poems and reading them to each other. Well, I think our domestic life is, is practically indistinguishable from all the people who live around us. The only main difference is that Ted doesn't go out to work at nine and come home at five. He retires about nine to, to his room and, and works. But I certainly have a life just like all the other housewives and mothers in our district, and shopping dishes and uh, taking care of the baby and so forth. Plath was actually writing The Bell Jar at the time of that interview. She alluded to it when she was interviewed again the next year, this time by the BBC's Peter Orr. He asks Plath if there are particular themes that she's interested in exploring, and she rambles off this sort of list of ingredients that she's baked right into The Bell Jar. Robert Lowell's poems about um, his experiences in a mental hospital, for example, interest me very much. These peculiar private and taboo subjects, I feel, have been explored in recent American poetry. I think particularly of the poetess Anne Sexton, who um, writes also about her experiences as a mother, as a mother who's had a nervous breakdown, as an extremely emotional and feeling young woman. And her poems are wonderfully... We'll be back with more of our story about The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath after a short break. We're back with our New York Icons feature about the bell jar. Producer Binish Ahmed picks up the story. Plath published the bell jar under a pseudonym because she was so worried about offending the people she fictionalized as characters in it. One of those characters was her editor at Mademoiselle, who she called J.C., in the bell jar, J.C. asks Esther what she wants to do after college, and suddenly she draws a blank, unable to list off all of her ambitions of being a professor and a writer or an editor and a writer. I've always thought I'd like to go into publishing. I tried to recover a thread that might lead me back to my old bright salesmanship. I guess what I'll do is apply at some publishing house. You ought to read French and German. J.C. said mercilessly, and probably several other languages as well, Spanish and Italian, better still, Russian. Hundreds of girls flood into New York every June thinking they'll be editors. J.C. is a tough editor who cuts her down to size. In that way, she calls to mind another memorable story set at a women's magazine in New York. So you don't read Runway? Uh, no. And before today, you had never heard of... Me? No. 
And you have no style or sense of fashion. Well, um, I think that depends on what you're... No, no, that wasn't a question. That, of course, is Meryl Streep as Miranda Priestly in The Devil Wears Prada, giving a very similar takedown to Andy Sachs, her would-be assistant. That's a, a complete exaggeration. Oh, yeah, Anna Wintour is the longtime editor of Vogue and the basis for Miranda Priestly. And The Devil Wears Prada is based on a novel by Lauren Weisberger, who, like Sylvia Plath, fictionalized the experiences she had working at a magazine, in her case, Vogue. This is how Wintour responded to the film in an interview with 60 Minutes. I mean, I guess in response, I can only say that I've had, I have so many people here, Molly, that have worked with me for 15, 20 years. And, you know, if, if I'm such a bitch, they must really be a glutton for punishment well, because they're a, still here. I wouldn't use the word bitch. One criticism of the bell jar has been how Plath handled race, using slurs and stereotypes. But her world was mainly a white world. All of the guest editors looked nearly identical in a photo taken of them for the magazine. Every one of them was a white woman in a neat little bob. As the executive editor of Teen Vogue, Samitha Mukhopade is one of the rare women of color in a top position at a national magazine. Even though she shared the same aspiration as Sylvia Plath, Mukupade didn't connect with the bell jar when she read it as part of a women's studies class in college. That's because she never dreamed that an opportunity like the bell jar would plop down before her. Not much about her story was relatable to my own experience. And I will say a part of it is like I never even thought that I could have a job in publishing. Mukupade has made it a point to put a spotlight on the experiences of others who might feel like she did as a young person an outsider looking into the world of magazines and models and makeup, but not seeing herself reflected back. It's still a challenge. Advertising really needs to kind of catch up with some of that diversity, right? And, and, and I think that we, you know, for as much as like we try to reflect a certain type of very woke, young, diverse person, there's this like broader industry that hasn't like fully embraced it, right? And so you have both, you know, I think in terms of what advertisers look for and what they think is kind of appealing to the American consumer. But then you have companies that don't provide the products that you need, right? You don't, we don't have enough like companies that have extended sizing. We don't have enough beauty companies that are kind of have the diversity of makeup that we want. I show Mukupade that Jansen ad Plath biographer Heather Clark pointed out to me. Anyone for tennis, anyone for action, anyone for beautiful form and action. Is this Spanx for tennis? Her reaction surprises me because all those images from the 1950s of women in girdles and corsets seem so dated. But today, we're buying into the same insecurities, just with updated terms. But it's interesting that you make that connection, like this is still with us, right? This Absolutely, idea. yeah. There's still, yeah, in like kind of intense ways now with, you know, waist trainers and flat tummy tees and plastic surgery to create certain silhouettes. I feel that, yes, that is <laughs> that is very much with us today. Meg Wolitzer, the novelist, has so much in common with Sylvia Plath that it's uncanny. Wolitzer also went to Smith College and had early literary success there. And she also was a guest editor at Mademoiselle in 1979. I must say they really gutted the lobby. It, it was completely different. We're standing outside what used to be the Barbizon on the Upper East Side. So I loved it. 
the hotel where both Wolitzer and Plath stayed during their time as guest editors. I loved its strange, mildewed quality. I loved being part of that even as it was a last gasp. We ended up being the last guest editors that they ever had. We were the last crowd because magazines were changing, the world was changing. And New York was changing. The building is now multi-million dollar condos, complete with an Equinox gym. Just peering in now, it's this super high-end looking residence, but it was a dark lobby, not very welcoming. And men couldn't go above the first floor, I think, unless they were accompanied by a woman. I, I can't remember exactly, but there was a sort of sense of the past even then. It was like a last vestige of New York that I'd read about in books like The Bell Jar. For Wolitzer, staying in an all-women's hotel with rules like that in 1979 felt like stepping into another era. A lot of those rules had been in place since Platt stayed at the Barbizon 25 years earlier. She called it the Amazon. This hotel, the Amazon, was for women only. And they were mostly girls my age with wealthy parents who wanted to be sure their daughters would be living where men couldn't get at them and deceive them. Wolitzer read the bell jar at the emotionally turbulent age of 13. Adolescence is a time of firsts. So as an adolescent, you are feeling things for the first time, you are reading them for the first time, and you feel often like your head is filled with fire when you read somebody else's experience that you hadn't understood. That feeling is one Wolitzer set into motion in her young adult novel, Bell Jar. That's B-E-L-Z-H-A-R. The book is set at a boarding school for students who have experienced some sort of emotional trauma. Five students are placed in special topics in English, a class where their teacher, Mrs. Quinnell, has them read just one writer over the course of the whole semester. She reaches below the table and pulls out a stack of five identical books which she passes around. It's the bell jar. A student named Mark has the same reaction many people do when he sees it. This is from the audiobook version of Wolitzer's book. I know that book, he says. It's supposed to be really dark. I think I remember something about the author. He pauses, not sure if he should go on. Go ahead, Mark, says Mrs. Quinnell. Well, he says uneasily, I guess she, you know, killed herself. Is that right? She turned on the gas and put her head in the oven? Yes, that's right. No offense, says Mark. I'm sure you're a good English teacher and all, but is that appropriate for us? The students find the book to be more than appropriate. The bell jar's handling of themes like alienation and depression are all too familiar to them. Wolitzer says that she and the last batch of guest editors felt their own connection to Plath. On the last night of their stay at the Barbizon, they climbed up to the roof to honor her. We definitely said something about Plath at the hotel, a sort of some kind of summoning her up in a way, because I think we were all really aware of her, aware of her presence throughout this experience as guest editors. The moment evoked a passage in the bell jar about Esther's last night in New York City. Piece by piece, I fed my wardrobe to the night wind, and flutteringly like a loved one's ashes, the gray scraps were ferried off, 
to settle here, exactly where I would never know, in the dark heart of New York. Esther throws away all of her clothes after she returns home from a party. Her face is bloodied and her dress is torn from fighting off a man who had attempted to rape her. Marco set his teeth to the strap at my shoulder and tore my sheath to the waist. I saw the glimmer of bare skin, like a pale veil separating two bloody-minded adversaries. Slut, the word hissed in my ear. Slut. The dust cleared, and I had a full view of the battle. I began to writhe and bite. Marco weighed me to the earth. Slut. I gouged at his leg with the sharp heel of my shoe. He turned, fumbling for the hurt. Then I fisted my fingers together and smashed them at his nose. It was like hitting the steel plate of a battleship. Marco sat up. I began to cry. Esther had a feeling about Marco when she first met him. I began to see why women haters could make such fools of women. Women haters were like gods, invulnerable and chock full of power. They descended and then they disappeared. You could never catch one. Until now. The Me Too movement has led to the fall of so many godlike men. The news might have been welcome to Plath. Biographer Heather Clark says it's hard to say if she experienced anything like the attempted rape she described in the bell jar. But Plath did tell friends she went on a bad date during her summer. And she did go up to the roof of the Barbizon on her last night to toss away her girdles. And the friend told me, it was uh, the woman who was with Plath on the, that night, and uh, she, she called them waist cinchers. She said, we threw our waist cinchers off. And she described them as instruments of torture. On that last night in the city, she threw away the preposterous beauty standards sold by advertisers. The social pressure for women to shrink themselves to fit into a man's world, to pare down their own desires. She refused to be an object for the taking by women haters. Plath had only been in the city for less than a month, and yet something had shifted inside of her during that time. Even her mother said so in an interview just after the bell jar was published in England in 1963. She came home and that was when she had her breakdown. She, she couldn't concentrate, she couldn't read, she just uh, wasn't the same girl that went. At the end of the summer, she swallowed a near-lethal dose of sleeping pills. When she came to consciousness after her first attempt, the first thing she said, that was my last act of love. When I first read The Bell Jar as a 16-year-old, I couldn't help but feel envy for Plath at the start. The idea of an unsupervised summer in the city, a coveted role at a top magazine, a foot wedged firmly in the door of an industry that's still so hard to break into. Now I can see all the expectations that hung over Plath, some of them contradictory, and many of them issues we still deal with. That's part of the reason I think this book has held up so well. It's about a young woman that's having a nervous breakdown, but I think if you read between the lines of the bell jar, there's always this question of, well, are you sick? Or did your society make you sick? That story was produced by Binish Ahmed and mixed by Wayne Schulmeister. Lorraine Mattox read the excerpts from The Bell Jar. Studio 360.
Salsa fanatics thought Siembra was doomed when the album came out on Fania Records in 1978. The songs were too long. They bashed American consumerism and roused Latinos to push for social change. But in fact, Siembra became the first salsa record to sell more than a million copies. It's still probably the bestseller in the genre. Giselle Regatau has the story of why Siembra was so successful and how it eventually fostered a colossal fight. How do you make a salsa hit? First, you use a British opera from the 18th century about a beggar. Then, you add the German take on it from 1928. Mix a little bit of gangs from Panama, a black sneaker, a golden tooth, a prostitute, a thief, and you have Pedro Navaja, or Peter the Blade, a song that is more than seven minutes long. Lentes oscuros pa' que no sepan que está mirando Pedro Navaja is a thief who is walking down the street. From the opposite direction comes a woman, a prostitute. Pedro stabs her to try to rob her of her purse. But she has a gun, and even injured, she manages to shoot him. They both die. This is an encounter between two people. And the, the consequences of the encounter are not expected by any of the participants. Ruben Blades is a singer-songwriter from Panama who wrote Pedro Navaja mixing all of those influences. He composed the lyrics and music of all but one song of the album Siembra. And then at the end, the, the beneficiary of the somebody else's disgrace is a drunk who then picks up everything that that he found thanks God and then keeps on walking saying that life is full of surprises life gives you surprises that chorus is the perfect analogy for the album Siembra itself. It almost didn't come out. I remember that they, Jerry Masucci, who was the president of Fania, he called Willie Colon and myself to um, his office, and he played the record in front of the three top DJs, uh, New York DJs, salsa DJs. And the three of them said that this record should not be put out because it would be the commercial death of Willie Colon. Willie Colon was the big star on the album at the time. Raised in the Bronx, Colon was already a salsa institution as a trombone player, and he had more than a dozen records under his belt. Siembra was his second collaboration with Ruben Blades, and on the album he did not play the trombone. He was the producer. Willie Colon at the time was a, uh, a proven seller, uh, he was very famous and established. If Willie Colon had not been on this record, it could have been put away. By the time Siembra came out, salsa was a big phenomenon in New York City. 
The rhythm was born in Latino neighborhoods like this one, East Harlem. When my uh, parents came to the U.S. from Puerto Rico, they both lived here and they met at a party here. Ed Morales is a music critic and author of several books, including Latinx, The New Force in American Politics and Culture. He says Salsa was born here and in the Bronx, as different immigrants met in New York, in particular Puerto Ricans, Cubans, and African Americans. And uh, they formed a, a kind of a melting pot among themselves, uh, which was part of the creation of uh, a Latino identity in New York. And the Latino identity in New York has always been more diverse than other Latino uh, populations of different cities, like, for instance, in the West Coast, more dominated by uh, Mexicans and Central Americans. That melting pot led to lots of music mixes. In the late 50s came mambo, which combined jazz with Cuban rhythms. But in 1959, Cuba had its revolution. Aquí Radio Rebelde a las puertas de Santiago de Cuba. The cultural relation between U.S. and Cuba uh, chilled, and they began to lack access to all of this uh, Cuban music that was coming. So then they were forced to try to make their own kind of music. The first kind of music they made was Boogaloo. Boogaloo, baby, I made it me. Because I gave it the Latin beat. Do me a favor, honey, go someplace and hide. <laughs> yes, that's the song that Cardi B sampled. But I digress. In the 60s, Salsa mixed all of those rhythms with a little bit of rock and added a very important instrument, the trombone. They wanted to create this sound, and the trombone sounds uh, kind of... Not as pleasant. It reflected the difficult reality of Latin immigrants at the time. And Eddie Palmieri had the idea of using two trombones and putting them in the front. By the time Ruben Blades moved to New York, Salsa was booming. His family left Panama because of political issues, and he already had a law degree then, but in New York, his diploma was worthless. Blades had recorded songs before, so he called up a contact he had at Funnier Records. Could I go there and sing or write for you? And they said, no, uh, we, we don't need you. And then right before I hung up, I said, uh, do you have anything there? And then he said... Um, there's a job in the mailroom that just opened today. He took that job. Once there, Blades found his way into writing and recording songs. Ruben Blades was 30 years old when he recorded Siembra. It was his third album. The record was so different that to test the waters, he says Fania Records started promoting Siembra abroad first, in places like Venezuela, Mexico, Puerto Rico. The album became 
a smash, I mean a Beatles-sized type of success abroad. It was the first salsa album to become really successful outside of New York City. And that's because Ruben Blades was talking to the whole region. That had never been done in that way on a, on a popular record at the time. Nobody talked about Latin America. Things were about El Barrio, the neighborhood, maybe Puerto Rico, but you weren't addressing Latin America as a whole. And the fact that, uh, oye Latino, oye hermano, oye amigo, nunca vendas tu destino por el oro, you know, don't exchange your dignity for, for, for material things, Latin, friend, brother, hermano, that was, uh, that had not been presented in that context before. So many people identify with it. Latin America was going through big political turmoil then. Many countries like my native Brazil were under military dictatorships. The political songs of Siembra spoke to them. And this success abroad pushed the album back to the New York airwaves. Percussionist composer and music professor Bobby Sanabria was studying music in college then. He grew up in the Bronx, and he says it was an exciting time for salsa. There was a lot of competition. There were about 100 bands performing in the tri-state area. And uh, competition breeds what? Excellence. In terms of Ruben, he pushed that envelope with uh, supreme lyricism. And uh, thank God he did. And as Willie, as a producer, very innovative as well. Nobody gives him the credit that he should rightly deserve. Very innovative in his production techniques, mixing techniques. So uh, he's the other half of the secret uh, to that album. Sanabria remembers listening to Siembra for the very first time when the album came out in 1978. He was surprised to find himself drawn to the words. As a musician, usually you pay attention to the music first. When I opened up the album, so the li- I started paying attention to the lyrics. And as a New Yorker, my Spanish was not the best. Yo me defiendo, como dicen. That means he can get by. But uh, it was like, it, this was like Shakespearean poetry on wax. Another thing that struck Sanabria right away about Siembra was the beginning of the first track. So somebody who's a salsero knows Ruben, he goes, oh, this is going to be a salsa album. And all of a sudden, wait a minute, wait a minute. They might have even said, hey, what is this? You know, maybe I bought the wrong album. They hear a disco beat, and then all of a sudden it breaks into a mambo guaracha rhythm. And he starts talking about what the song is about, about the phoniness of many times that we uh, take upon ourselves when we go out to the nightclub and just go out to party where we should be thinking about what's happening around us with the government and how they're exploiting us. Plastico means plastic. It's a song that is critical about the cult of appearance and consumerism. 
not a topic of your typical salsa. Most hits were about love, lust, having a good time. But the audience went crazy. In Venezuela, one time, they were, they, they were like, they almost knocked the bus over when we got to the, to the stadium. Papo Vasquez is a trombone player who was part of the recording and touring of Siembra. In concerts in Mexico, people asking you to sign their, their T-shirts. It was, it's crazy. It was a high, high moment in, in, in Latin music. See, the, the, the beautiful thing about that music was that what you heard on the record is what you were going to get when you were going to go see the band live. It was as organic as you could get, because if you have the same instrumentation that's playing on the recording, it's going to play live. We'll continue our story about the album Siembra, a New York icon, after this short break. Studio 360. We're back with our New York icon story about the 1978 album Siembra by Ruben Blades and Willie Colon. Our producer Giselle Regatau picks up the story with the influences that Siembra has on today's music. Buscando Guayaba is also one of the most popular songs on the album. It literally means searching for a fruit. But it's not really about a fruit. It's about itching, wanting something more. It's one of the most danceable songs on the record, and it used to be a favorite for cultural critic Carolina Gonzalez. But I think that today, in 2019, my favorite is the title song. Because, I, you know, I started getting all philosophical about it. And, you know, the idea of look at the seeds that you are planting and you will, you know, and you'll see what comes up. You know, be careful of the seeds that you plant and you will see what comes up. I mean, right now that hits really hard, you know, uh, in both senses, both in the sense of all the terrible things that are happening are from seeds that have been planted for a long time but also how we're going to get out of that is going to come from seeds that we are planting and that we have to nurture. Gonzalez says Siembra also created a blueprint for future generations of Latin musicians. Of how do you take these thoughtful, philosophical, intellectual ideas that have, you know, um, a thought of social justice, but also integrate it with different genres that are more populist or popular. And so once Ruben and Willie said that blueprint, it's been a lot easier for other people to follow. So like, I mean, anybody like Cafe Tacuba or Calle 13 or Julieta Venegas or anybody like that, they're all following this playbook. (laughs) 
Y sobre el horizonte ve una nube viajera dibujando la cara del gran Maelo Rivera. Celebra esta reunión, compay. ¿Qué te parece esta combinación de Rubencito y Calle 13? La noche me sirve de sábana. Pero eso no resuelve al blanco sospechoso. La noche me sirve de sábana. Ruben Blades recorded this song, La Perla, with the popular Puerto Rican group Calle 13 in 2008. Ile is part of the group. She says recording with Blades was like working with an uncle because she grew up listening to Siembra at home. And I love that album. It's part of the, I don't know, the salsa culture. Ruben Blades was someone that changed the perspective of salsa, I think. Um, It gave a different message, and but it was uh, something that we need to hear, that we needed to hear, and it's something that it has also a lot to do with, with nowadays, um, like older songs that they were sending their own message from their own time, but you hear it nowadays and they have a connection as well. So um, that album is majestuoso. Uh, I don't know how to say that in English, but majestic, maybe. Ile also has a solo career as a singer-songwriter, and she says her political songs are inspired by the message of Siembra. Here in Puerto Rico, that is a small island, you feel the emptiness a lot more, so it frustrates me and, and makes me sad as well to feel that people are indifferent to reacting, and now we need reaction and we need each other a lot more. Siembra not only instigated Latinos to push for social change, but it also catapulted the political careers for both Willie Colon and Ruben Blades. Colon ran for U.S. Congress and for New York public advocate in the 90s. He lost both elections and ended up serving as an advisor to Mayor Bloomberg. Ruben Blades was even more ambitious. After graduating from Harvard Law School in the 80s, he ran for president of Panama in 1994, but he lost that as well. Then a decade later, he was appointed that country's minister of tourism. He says it was his success that pushed him into politics. You know what happens is that there's a contradiction that arose uh, in my life. I mean, on the one hand, I, I'm doing music and singing about people who are having difficulties, social, economic difficulties. And in the process, I became a wealthy person. And there was a contradiction there. Because all of a sudden now, I'm singing about Paulo Paulo, but I'm not him anymore. In the sense that I can choose. He can't. He's thinking about another run in Panama, maybe in 2024. The album Siembra also changed the relationship between Ruben Blades and Willie Colon. When the record came out, Colon was the most famous of the two. But with Siembra, Blades became a huge star, and he has since won 17 Grammys, between regular and Latin Grammys. He also became an actor and has done many films and TV shows. 
That success drove Cologne and Blades apart, and they ended up entangled in the legal disputes that turned them from friends to foes. On the 25th anniversary of Siembra, they did a concert together in Puerto Rico, but weren't paid what they expected. Colón sued Blades, claiming he had kept some of his money. Colón declined to be interviewed for this story, but he eventually dropped the lawsuit. Blades says that battle ruined their relationship. I think he's one of the best producers the business has ever known, uh, salsa business. And... uh, He's got a great sense of humor, and he's, you know, he's one of the icons. Uh, Other than that, I don't work with him anymore, and I will never work with him again. 41 years after Siembra was released, salsa no longer dominates the Latin music charts. That's all about reggaeton, hip-hop, pop. But salsa is still a popular dance form, and concerts draw a large crowd, like a recent salsa festival at Barclays Center in Brooklyn. I like salsa because it makes my heart beat faster. The music just makes your body go. One of those attending the concert is salsa fan Lizette Alvarado. She's in her 20s, but she says she loves songs from the 70s. And there's no question about what her favorite is. Yes, Pedro Navas, I love Pedro Navas. Come on, join me, guys. Por la esquina del viejo barrio lo vi pasar. Con el tumbao que tienen los guapos al caminar. Las manos siempre en los bolsillos de su gabán. Pa' que no sepan en cuál de ellas lleva el puñal. Usa un sombrero de ala ancha de medio lado. That's where it was produced by Giselle Regatau, with production help from Studio 360's Sandra Lopez Monsalve. New York icons are made possible by a grant from the Booth Ferris Foundation. And you can find our other New York icons at studio360.org. And that's it for today's show. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. The members of our production team are... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Andrew Adam Newman. Sandra Lopez-Monsalve. Evan Chung. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. Morgan Flannery. And I'm Kurt Anderson. Nobody gives him the credit that he so rightly deserve. Thanks very much for listening. PRI, Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360. We have this attitude about the old dour Willa Cather never smiling and just thinking about pioneer ladies all the time. The unjust way that the great American novelist Willa Cather gets short shrift. It seems like she sort of was purposefully left out of the canon, and I don't understand it because she's amazing. The underappreciated greatness of Cather's novel My Antonia. That's next time on Studio 360.